0: hello 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 and welcome to a dose of true crime the podcast with a penchant for poison i'm your host and resident toxicologist erin and this week we are back with part two of the story of the teacup murders and one Graham Young. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, episode nine, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that first as it will give you some of the backstory kind of leading into this week's, Um, and that one's called the Teacup Murders part one, and this will be part two. So again, if you haven't listened to episode nine, head back and do that. And then come back here. If you did listen to episode nine and you enjoyed it, please let me know. Uh, rate the podcast. You can leave me a review. You can follow me on Instagram at a dose of true crime. You can share it with your friends. Have something to talk about over your wine night with your girls. I mean, whatever floats your boat, truly. So let's jump right back into this. In 1971, Trevor Sparks was enjoying life. He spent time drinking with friends and playing soccer. He resided in a hostel in Slough, England, and at 34, he was social and made friends pretty easily. In February of that year, 1971, Trevor met a new tenant of the hostel he was staying in and struck up a pretty fast friendship. He often met up with his new friend And they would meet in Trevor's room to share a drink or meet out at a local pub. On the 10th of February, Trevor fell violently ill, complete with uncontrollable diarrhea and the feeling of pins and needles in his legs and severe pain in his groin. He rested and worked on recovering from this bout of illness. And over the next several weeks, he. Did overall improve, but still experienced sporadic instances of the symptoms popping back up. Doctors that he visited attributed the attacks to several different infections, including kidney infections, a bowel infection, and a urinary tract infection. Earlier in February, in the same month, a local pharmacy recorded an incident where a young man requested a certain drug and was denied. The young man did not have any authorization to procure the drug and was ultimately turned away. This young man, however, would return with a note from a local college stating that the compound antimony was required for qualitative and quantitative analysis. The pharmacy accepted the authorization and the man left the shop with 25 grams of antimony. The young man in question here was indeed Graham Young, who was recently released from Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital. He, upon his release, he would spend some time, a couple days staying with his sister and then soon relocated. The young man in question here was indeed Graham Young who on February 4th of that same year had been released from Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital. Graham would soon relocate to a hostel in Slough, England and befriend Trevor Sparks, providing drinks and company all the way through Trevor's illness. Within days of being released from Broadmoor, Graham had a new victim. Although surviving and eventually moving away from the hostel, Trevor was never really able to play soccer again. Graham moved on. He eventually landed a job with a local laboratory in Bovington that made infrared camera lenses using a thallium bromide iodide solution. The laboratory didn't stock that chemical on site, though, and Graham obviously wanted it. He returned to that pharmacy he used earlier to obtain thallium. Graham's role at this laboratory called Hadland Laboratories was as an assistant storekeeper. He would routinely fetch his coworkers' tea mugs and bring them to the storeroom. Each of his coworkers used their own personal tea mug, uh, so you can probably kind of see where this is going. Bob Eagle Graham's immediate supervisor was aware of Graham's history with Broadmoor, but not in any specific sense. Graham had fed his new employer a story about having a nervous breakdown after his mother died in a car crash, thus explaining the break in his employment record. Bob was not aware of Graham's prior conviction and subsequent incarceration in Broadmoor. Graham's new coworkers all seemed to be falling victim to what was called the Bovingdon bug, which was kind of a mystery illness that was spreading through everyone. People would experience vomiting, diarrhea, nausea, and abdominal pains. There was lots of theories going on as to what was causing this bug, but ultimately no one really could pinpoint it. In June of 1971, Bob Eagle fell extremely ill. He missed several days of work and he was able to return after being off for a time. But upon coming back to work, he fell ill again and was hospitalized. The gastrointestinal upset he was experiencing progressed to intense back pain and tingling in his hands and his feet, leading to a loss of sensation Altogether. Eventually, Bob became paralyzed. Graham was a seemingly devoted employee and regularly checked in on Bob by calling the hospital and asking for progress updates. Bob eventually succumbed to his illness on July 7th, 1971. An autopsy showed signs of polyneuritis, which is a condition where peripheral nerves, like the arms and the legs, lose functionality leading to numbness, tingling, and eventually paralysis. Seeming to be a caring employee, Graham attended Bob's funeral as the company's representative alongside the managing director, Godfrey Foster. Foster remarked on the strange comments Graham made at the funeral that Bob, an army veteran who had served during the battle of Dunkirk, would survive that only to be killed by quote, a strange virus. Bob's absence and subsequent death did not slow down the mysterious virus at the laboratory. Ron Hewitt fell ill while Bob Eagle was in the hospital. Departing the lab for another job, Ron seemed to recover quickly after his last day. Over the next several months, other employees fell ill, including Diana Smart, David Tilson, and Jethro Batt. Diana, when ill, would miss work and then recover and return. David and Jethro were both hospitalized after ingesting a beverage prepared by Graham. Neither man consumed a large amount of their drink due to the taste of the beverage, too sweet or too strong, but both men fell ill shortly after. David Tilson was given tea prepared by Graham that was overly sweet. A week later, Graham prepared another cup of tea for David and after drinking it, David lost feeling in his legs and was struggling to breathe. His chest was hurting and his skin was reportedly unbearably sensitive. Even the hospital bedsheet was too heavy for his skin and caused him extreme pain. David also lost all of his hair. He eventually recovered and was released from the hospital, but he was permanently impotent after that bout of illness. Jethro Bat shared a similar experience to David Tilson. Jethro was friendly with Graham and often gave Graham a ride home after work. Jethro also fell ill with the same symptoms as David, loss of sensation in his legs, chest pain, and difficulty breathing. He also lost his hair and was unable to have children afterwards, but again, he survived in October of 1971. Now keep in mind, Graham was released from Broadmoor in February of the same year. (laughs) So October, a few months later, another coworker fell ill. Fred Biggs displayed the same symptoms as his coworkers before him, all associated with the Bovingdon bug. He was admitted to the hospital and his condition worsened. He lost the ability to speak and struggled to breathe. His skin would begin to die and peel away. Graham, again, seemed extremely interested in Fred's condition and would phone the hospital and Fred's wife for updates. On November 19th, 1971, Fred Biggs passed away during all of this. The employees at Hadlon's laboratory had noticed that one person seemed immune to the Bovingdon bug. One person never seemed to be ill when everyone else was constantly sick. Additionally, management had discussed the illness with staff and were working through ruling things out. The company physician, Dr. Ian Anderson, held a meeting where he informed the staff that he could rule out heavy metal poisoning along with some others. Graham was extremely outspoken during this meeting, arguing with Dr. Anderson about symptoms of heavy metal poisoning. Dr. Anderson paid attention. His spidey senses were tingling. He caught up with Graham after the meeting and continued their conversation, trying to determine just how much Graham knew about poisons. Dr. Anderson promptly informed management, and then they called the police. The investigation took place and noted that the bug arrived at the same time as Graham Young. They also uncovered the truth of Graham's history with incarceration at Broadmoor through a background check on November 20th, 1971. So this is the day after Fred Biggs died. Graham Young was arrested. At the time he was at his aunt's house and had nothing on him that could be linked back to the Bovington bug. A search of the room he was renting, however, was a very different story. His room contained a huge amount of toxic substances, thallium, antimony, atropine, aconitine, and digitalis. He had enough to administer lethal doses to many, many people. During the search, police also uncovered a register that detailed each experiment Graham had undertaken. The notebook contained details of each person Graham poisoned, including the compounds he used, the dose given, and the effects the victim suffered. Graham also noted whether he intended to let the victim live or die. With the police having the notebook, Graham confessed to everything. He confessed to poisoning Bob Eagle, Fred Biggs, David Tilson, Jethro Batt, and Trevor Sparks. He also addressed the death of his stepmother, Molly, which he claimed as his quote, perfect murder. At the time there was not enough evidence to tie the crime to Graham, but with his admission, police could categorize her death as a murder. Years after the fact, ultimately Graham Young was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, four counts of administering poison with intent to injure and four counts of administering poison with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. Graham ended up pleading not guilty, which meant that the case would proceed to a trial by jury. He also withdrew the confession he had initially made to police. After several thwarted attempts to find a lawyer to defend Graham, the trial commenced. Graham was the only witness to be called to the defense, where he claimed the notebook police found was simply a fictional story that he had been developing. At the conclusion of the court case, the jury found Graham Young guilty of two counts of murder for Bob Eagle and Fred Biggs. Two counts of attempted murder of David Tilson and Jethro Batt, and two counts of poisoning with intent to injure Diana Smart and Ron Hewitt. He was acquitted on the charges referring to Trevor Sparks and Peter Buck. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Where is Graham Young now, you may ask? In August of 1990, he died of a heart attack in prison at 42 years old. Officials definitely suspect suicide or possibly even murder as Graham Young did not have a history of cardiac disease. Graham Young's reconviction also triggered an in-depth review of the current laws and regulation around the reintroduction of incarcerated individuals categorized as mentally ill any patient in a facility would now require two recommendations for release from two separate providers, which is interesting since Graham was not considered mentally ill during his stint at Broadmoor. So with that, let's jump into the science we've got a bit to get through, so there's Quite a few compounds that came into play during this story, uh, and several victims that suffered from each of these. So up first, we're going to start with thallium, which was used to poison Fred Biggs, Jethro Bat, David Tilson, Bob Eagle, and Graham's stepmother, Molly. So thallium is a heavy metal that can be found on the periodic table and it's toxic thallium can be absorbed through the skin or the gi tract and it can also be inhaled thallium structurally is similar to potassium and can interfere with the mechanisms where potassium is used in toxic concentrations thallium will collect in tissues where there's normally a lot of potassium and inhibit several critical pathways that keep cells alive So hop on back to uh, biology 101. Uh, The Krebs cycle is a big one that's interrupted and that leads to a lack of ATP, which is a big energy source in your cells. So it also, uh, thallium can also mess with the keratin structure in cells. So think of where you find keratin in your hair. So think of those that lost their hair after being poisoned with thallium. It also causes the the myelin um, or like the protective padding around your nerve cells to fall apart, leaving those nerves exposed and very touchy, which is the origination of, you know, the pain and the numbness and the nerve issues that occur. Symptoms within the first three to four hours of exposure are gastrointestinal, vomiting, diarrhea, nausea, etc. After that, symptoms spread to neurologic issues, so neuropathies, which is pain and numbness in legs and feet, some even impacting male potency, headache, seizure, tremors, etc., with victims eventually falling into a coma before death ultimately. Thallium is unique in that it does have a potential antidote. Prussian blue is a medication given in pill form that can remove thallium from the human body. It basically prevents thallium from being absorbed from your gastrointestinal tract. Um, It traps it there so your body can excrete it. The efficacy is still being studied but it currently is the recommended treatment for thallium toxicity. Antimony is up next. Um, this was the victims that suffered antimony poisoning were Diana Smart and Trevor Sparks. Antimony is another heavy metal that can be found on the periodic table. Um, and it also can be absorbed into the body in a few ways. It, Symptom-wise can be very similar to thallium, um, but can also include ulcers and interestingly uh, pustules on the skin near sweat glands and also some hypertension. So if inhaled, there are some respiratory effects that can also be seen. um, But Graham's victims were given antimony in a liquid. We're not really going to go into the respiratory effects. Atropa belladonna is another compound, and that was given to Winifred Young, who is Graham's older sister. So atropa belladonna is also called deadly nightshade. It is the origins of atropine, which is a pretty common medication used in medical settings, and remember, since the dose makes the poison, too much atropine can be deadly. Atropibelladonna is an anticholinergic drug. So that means it kind of works against acetylcholine. And remember acetylcholine is an important neurotransmitter. That's basically a little messenger that helps get signals from the brain to your body to get your muscles to move all that. Acetylcholine is released from the end of a neuron and it crosses to the nerve to stimulate it. So atropa belladonna works against that stimulation. It prevents acetylcholine from sending that signal and thus kind of dries you up. So the symptoms associated with the anticholinergic toxidrome or toxidrome is like a toxic syndrome. There's a handy saying that goes with it. And that's mad as a hatter, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, red as a beet, hot as a hair and the heart runs alone so to break that down mad as a hatter um, usually with anticholinergic toxicity you see an altered mental status so confusion restlessness delirium agitation blind as a bat uh, we see mydriasis which is where your pupils are very dilated and can keep you from seeing clearly dry as a bone a lot of your mucosal membranes will be very dry. So, your mouth, a dry mouth, no sweating, urinary retention, so everything dries up. Red as a beet. So, this talks about the vasodilation. So, dilation of your blood vessels, which will decrease your blood pressure with hyperemia, which is an excess of oxygen in the bloodstream. Hot as a hair. Uh, So that's anhydrosis, which is a lack of sweating with temperature elevation, so a fever. And the heart runs alone is tachycardia, so an increased heart rate. So treatment for atropa belladonna toxicity is really supportive. Making sure breathing is sufficient, fluids are given to help with the blood pressure, Benzodiazepines can be used to calm the neurological symptoms like delirium, agitation, etc. cetera. Um, so think back to part one where Graham's sister, Winifred was trying to catch a bus or a train to work and was instead taken to the hospital when she started hallucinating. Um, and those are pretty, pretty classic signs of the anticholinergic toxidrome. Another compound that was used was cyanide. Cyanide was allegedly used on Graham's inmate from Broadmoor, um, his first, which was the first time he was incarcerated. John Barrage, his form, his co-inmate, co-inmate, John Barrage died. And although Graham fully admitted to killing him, officials did not take him seriously because remember at the time Graham was 14, he was young. Graham claimed to have extracted cyanide from a laurel bush. So what's the truth here? Is that even possible? So a laurel bush also called a cherry laurel is part of the prunus species. This species also includes peaches, cherries, apricots, plums, and nectarines. So think about what all those things have in common. There's a pit, there's a peach pit, a cherry pit, a nectarine pit. They all have pits, but don't freak out. Eating those fruits is not going to give you cyanide poisoning. You're, you're safe. Uh, cyanide is a combination of carbon, nitrogen, and hydrogen. In these plants, the cyanide is essentially contained as a cyanogenic glycoside, which is just a big word for a natural compound in plants. So when this glycoside is manipulated, so when it's crushed or chewed or frozen or wilted, or I mean, anything, the glycoside can come in contact with other parts of the plant. The other parts of the plant contain an enzyme that can convert the glycoside to cyanide. So the enzymes, it's kind of like a little chemical motor. It gets the reaction going. So Graham's claim to have extracted cyanide from a laurel bush checks out. It's possible to do this. Granted, all of the plants that contain these cyanogenic glycosides don't necessarily contain a whole ton of it. Unlikely to really be enough to impact anyone. So to collect enough cyanide to kill someone would take time and dedication. It would really not be an easy task So cyanide affects the ability of your blood to distribute oxygen. Think back to episode eight, where the husband put the nitrogen box on the wife's head and we went into the whole respiratory system. So cyanide prevents the oxygen in your bloodstream from actually being used. So instead of the little hemoglobins in your bloodstream dropping off the little oxygens at cellular daycare, the hemoglobins are stuck with all the little oxygens. Uh, cyanide interrupts oxidative phosphorylation or simpler it interrupts a critical pathway in cells that allows energy to be generated and it uses the oxygen provided in the bloodstream so cyanide stops that process so it stops the cells from using the oxygen and the oxygen just stays in the bloodstream so no energy is created which means that the cells aren't they can't be supported symptoms can kind of reflect asphyxiation you see headache dizziness confusion mydriasis which is dilated pupils um, and these can progress to tachycardia and tachypnea so tachy is usually like faster so tachycardia faster heart so increased heart rate and then tachypnea tachy and then the the pnea part my mom's gonna laugh at that when she hears it Um, (laughs) so like increased breathing the oxygen in the blood is not being used appropriately so a person poisoned with cyanide would look more red since there's an excess of oxygen in the blood and they also may smell faintly of almonds so that is the story for this week I know there was a lot of science at the end there but Hopefully, you came away with a little extra knowledge. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to share it. Otherwise, have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. To get in touch with the podcast, you can send an email to adoseoftruecrime at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at crime all one word. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform you use. See you next week for more tales of toxicity. Bye. Oh, I didn't look up how to pronounce this slough, slough, slog. I don't know. Slough England. I was way off to the hostel in, oh gosh, I can't say the name of this place. Slough. How did I say it before? Slough, Slough England. I'm never going to get that. Bonvingdon, but Boving, Bovingdon? Is it Bovingdon? Y'all. The Ass is insane.